Folks, it's good to be with you here today. Um, I was saying to the kids I had to be away last Sunday morning at Knock Presbyterian where I'll have to visit periodically during this year. So there will be uh, some Sundays, maybe around about one per month, where I'll, I'll miss Sunday morning worship here. So it's good, good to be here this morning and to, to be back with you. If you could have Jonah chapter 1 open before you, we're actually going to look at the whole book of Jonah very quickly this morning, um, but it'll be good to have it open there uh, before you, because I'll be referring to bits and pieces uh, as we go. Let's pray. Lord, we come to a part of your word that seems familiar to us because we learned this story in Sunday school years ago. Help us not to, to miss the, the powerful uh, word that you want to share with us this morning as we look uh, at this, this prophet Jonah, your call on his life and his struggle to obey you. Help us to, to hear what you will say to us today. Amen. I've been your minister here for about seven and a half years, but there's still a lot that you don't know about me. Did you know, for instance, that I once uh, danced the lead in river dance? You didn't probably know that. Um, It was the spring of 1998. Um, It was at Taste of the World, Regent College's annual food and culture talent show evening, and students from each country of the world were supposed to put on a, sing a song or recite a poem or do a sketch, something to capture their culture and to to share it with the rest of the international student body. I can still remember the long discussions that we had as we tried to decide what we were to do. Although we were ostensibly representing Ireland, we were all from Ulster, all Ulster prods, and as we looked at our culture, we wondered, what is our culture? What will we share with the world? Will we get up and teach a few Ulster Scots phrases? Will we put on a a 12th of July parade with a wee riot going on in the corner just to keep it real? Or what about leading the Malaysians, Ugandans, and Koreans in a hearty rendition of the sash? We just weren't sure what we would do, how we would represent the the culture of Northern Ireland to to the world. So we ended up stealing a culture that's not really ours. There weren't many of us who grew up doing Irish dancing, uh, but we brought the house down with an unforgettable performance of river dance. That whole incident raised an interesting question for our wee group. What does it mean to belong to a nation? What role does nation have in our identity, in our sense of who we are? And this morning, in the context of our series on idolatry, I'd like to explore the question of nation And particularly asking the question, can our nation become an idol to us? The story of Jonah is a story of national idolatry. 
Uh, and the first sentence, uh, a very skillful uh, sentence, introduces a, a very dramatic plot to us. You, you may not have, have, have seen that. You maybe just were, were into the, the, the passage before you realized. But the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because of its wickedness. Because its wickedness has come before me. Nineveh is the most powerful city in the world at the time. The Assyrian Empire is at the height of its power. It's threatening to overrun Israel and all other nations within touching distance. Although the the mission that God sends Jonah on is to preach against Nineveh, Jonah knows right away that there's no reason for sending a warning to Nineveh unless there was a chance that that the judgment was going to be averted. So Jonah knew what was going on here. God was reaching out to the enemy of his people. And not only that, he was choosing to send a patriotic Jewish prophet to do the reaching out. You couldn't find a less likely mission or a, a less likely messenger. Jonah decided not to do it. When, when you learn this in Sunday Club, you get the impression that Jonah's just a, a bad guy, doesn't like doing what he's told. We see now that we probably wouldn't have done it either. And in a deliberate contradiction to God's command, instead of going to Nineveh, which is in the east, he goes to Tarshish, which is on the western rim of the known world at the time. It couldn't be more stark, his disobedience, the exact opposite of what God has called him to do. And why did he do that? Well, we might say that he was afraid of failure. He's a lone Jewish prophet. He doesn't want to go to this aggressive pagan city and to preach to the people there. He knows that he'd be be mocked and, and maybe just as certainly killed. Preachers don't like going to places where they won't be persuasive. So maybe Jonah was afraid of failure, but... But I wonder, was he even more afraid of success? Assyria was a a cruel and a violent empire. They were already bullying Israel. They were having them pay tribute, which is kind of like uh, an international protection money. Jonah had been called by God to warn the Assyrians to change their ways so that God wouldn't punish them. And Jonah knew that if they survived, they'd continue to be a threat to Israel. He doesn't want to be part of that mission. He doesn't want to warn the Assyrians. We're beginning to see here that Jonah has a cultural idol. The national interests of Israel are more important to him than obeying God. More important to him than the spiritual good of the Ninevites. He does not want to see them saved. So uh, we know from the, the story that he, instead of going to Nineveh, he gets in a boat and he goes to Tarshish. God sends that ferocious storm that threatens to sink the ship. The sailors cast lots to, to see who had brought this calamity on them, and the lot falls to Jonah. And then there's a conversation on the windswept deck of the ship And it comes to light that Jonah is a Hebrew prophet running from God. And he tells them, fellas, if you want this storm to stop, 
you've got to throw me overboard. They were afraid for their lives, and and so they did just that. God provides the, the fish to save Jonah by swallowing him. And this gave Jonah a a chance, a chance to rethink it all, to recover and to repent. And inside the fish, Jonah prays, and that's chapter 2, Jonah's prayer, where we don't have time to look at it in detail this morning. But notice one thing he says in verse 8 about idolatry. Remember, we're thinking here about idolatry. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. He's talking about the people of Nineveh, but he says something remarkable about them. He says that they forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The word translated here as grace is the Hebrew word hesed, which I think a few years ago when we were looking at some psalms together, we noticed what a wonderful word it is. It's the word for God's special covenant love for his people. His redeeming, unconditional grace. It's a word that's used loads of times in the Old Testament and almost always of Israel. Now Jonah's saying that those who worship idols forsake the hesed that could be theirs. Something's happened to Jonah. A light's gone on for him and he's seen that God's grace is equally as much for the people of Nineveh as it is for Israel. How can that be? Well, it's because grace is grace. If it's truly grace, if it's truly an unmerited favor, then it can't be for one and not for the other. It's not as if one person's worthy or one nation's worthy and the other is not. No one deserves God's grace but it's open to all. Let's pause here for a moment. Because Jonah's giving us an intriguing insight here. He says, what is it, according to Jonah, that blocks the grace of God coming into our lives? He says it's clinging to idols. So whenever we worship idols, the the grace of God or the good life that God calls us to It is kept from us. In Jonah's case, his idol is the idol of nation, and it's blinding him to the grace of God. Because of this idol in his life, he doesn't want to extend God's grace to an entire city that needs it. He's happier to see them all dead. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says that racial pride and cultural narrowness cannot coexist with the gospel of grace. They're mutually exclusive. One forces the other one out. I wonder if we believe that. I'm picturing for a moment the banner that goes at the front of the the parade on the 12th of July that says, For God and Ulster. And I'm wondering where the commitment really lies. Is it with God? Or is it with some particular vision of Ulster? Have we made an idol of some particular vision of nation? 
Are we missing God's grace for ourselves and failing to share it with others? In the belly of the fish, Jonah began to see something that he'd been missing all along, that that salvation is by grace and that therefore it belongs to, to anybody. It looks like a great moment. His, his racial idols have been removed as all this has dawned on him. The fish vomits him out and now Jonah has a second chance. It's as if chapters 1 and 2 are past and he's back to chapter 1. He knows that God wants him to go to Nineveh and tell the people there about his judgment, but his grace. What does Jonah do? Chapter 3. Jonah goes on an evangelistic crusade to Nineveh. He hires the Odyssey. He puts up a tent in any field around the city where there's space to do it. He tells of God's coming judgment, but of God's desire to forgive them. And it's amazing what happens. The people respond. The whole city en masse. Look at verse 8. The people say to themselves, Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anchor so that we will not perish. And we're told in verse 10 that God does have mercy on them. God didn't choose to punish them because God's heart is always to save rather than to punish. What a brilliant ending to the story. Jonah has come to his senses. He's realized that that God's grace is is for all. The Ninevites have heard and repented. They've turned from their their violence and their imperialism. And, And God's shown them mercy and love. If we were concluding the story in chapter 3, by adding a verse 11, we might say something like, they lived happily ever after. Or, to sound a bit more biblical, we might say, Jonah returned to his own land with rejoicing. It's all good. Jonah's done what God called him to do. And Nineveh has been saved. That would make for a great ending to this book, but it's not the ending that we get. In chapter 4, we see Jonah's response to God's mercy in Nineveh. Look at verses 1 to 3. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now we see Jonah's true colors. I knew it, he says to God. I knew that you were a compassionate God, so quick to forgive, so eager to save, so unceasingly patient. I knew I couldn't trust you. I knew that if I brought you anywhere near these people, you'd forgive them. You'd show them love and grace because that's what you always do. That's the kind of God you are. 
I quit. I resign. Take me off the profit payroll. I'm not working for you anymore. It's one of the most dramatic speeches in the whole of the Bible. And it lays bare Jonah's idol in the starkest possible way. He hates Ninevites. The only good Ninevite is a dead Ninevite. What's going on with Jonah? Chapter 2, it looked like he'd, he'd come to his senses there in the belly of the fish. He, he'd made that journey to the city. Oh, it, it only seemed to have reached him to a certain point, and maybe in his mind or his intellect. It, it hadn't transformed his heart, whatever happened back there. Jonah shows us that it's, it's one thing to believe things about God and about the gospel in your head. Maybe even to sign up to them on a piece of paper. But it's an entirely different thing to allow those things to work deep into our hearts so that they affect everything that we think and feel and do. Jonah is still entirely controlled by his idolatry. Reading this story of Jonah, I don't know about you, but for me, I can't help but wonder whether he stands before us as a mirror image of much of our Ulster evangelicalism. Is it possible that we're a community that preaches the gospel, but that struggles to live it out? Do we still think that half of this community is somehow superior to the other? That it's somehow more deserving of God's grace. Those who are on our side and not on theirs. In Tim Keller's words, we need to use the gospel on our hearts. We need to work it deep into our hearts so that it affects everything that we think and feel and do. We need to repent and be changed. We're almost done here. In the closing, almost bizarre, chapter 4, we read that Jonah has been sitting outside of Nineveh. He's been taking shade from the Middle Eastern sun under a plant. And when that plant dies, he's angry. And now for one last time, God shows him his idolatry. He confronts Jonah with the fact that he was more upset about a plant dying and his sunburn than he was about the thousands of people who, who were under God's judgment and wrath. His idolatrous love for his nation had removed his compassion. It had taken it away from him. Hundreds, Nineveh was a huge city, 100,000 people. And Jonah didn't care because he had an idol in his heart that was much more precious to him. In chapter 4, we see that God is different than Jonah. God ended his instruction of Jonah by drawing a deliberate contrast with how Jonah's just behaved and how God behaves. 
He asked Jonah to leave his comfort zone, to give up his safety, to go and minister to people who, who might harm him. Jonah didn't go at all at first, and when he finally went, he went without any compassion in his heart. And so God's question in the final verse, should I not be concerned about this great city? It sets God in contrast to his prophet. What did did God mean by this? Did God ever show himself to be any different than Jonah whom we're reading about here? Well, centuries later, God came among us as the ultimate Jonah. When Jesus came to earth, he left the comfort zone like no other. He left all the security that we could possibly imagine. He came to people who not only might harm him, he came to people who he knew would abuse him, reject him, and and execute him. He was going to have to do more than just preach to them to save them. He'd have to come and give his life for them. God hinted to Jonah, I think, in Jonah chapter 4, that he was going to love the great lost cities of this world in a way that Jonah wouldn't. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he, he kept that promise. Folks, the, the book of Jonah, if you look carefully at the ending, it ends very, in a very open-ended way. I think it ends with an implicit question. God asks Jonah, Jonah, shouldn't your love be more like mine? Will you come out of your self-absorption, your idolatry, and will you begin to live for me and for others? I said it ends in an open-ended way because although the question's posed, the answer never comes. The book simply ends. Why is that? Why aren't we shown Jonah's response in this book? It's as if God has aimed an arrow of loving rebuke at Jonah's heart, as though he's let it fly, but then suddenly Jonah vanishes out of the picture, and we're left standing in the way. The the question, the arrow's now firing straight at us. I am Jonah and so are you. Folks, it's very possible and even likely, I think, growing up in a country like this, that we are enslaved somehow by the idolatry of nation. That we somehow don't care or don't care in the right way about people from the other side of our divided community. People who live in the west of this city rather than the east. If that's not your issue, then maybe it's a class issue where people of a different class or people who are simply different in some significant way are people whom we've chosen to to ignore. We've made nation or tribal identities into idols. And God's word's coming now at us this morning in this this very short story, like an arrow to the heart, and it asks a question, now that you see this, will you change? Will you repent of this idol 
Are you willing to stop being a Jonah and to be more like Jesus Christ, who gave his all to come to his enemies that they might live? Let us pray. Father God, now you're talking. Now your word is cutting like a double-edged sword. Now it's going deep. Help us to love you to have a greater desire for your Son and his glory than these idols of our hearts. Our political and our tribal allegiances. Free us up, Lord, to love you and to love all in your name. Amen. Just now we're going to sing a a song that speaks of God's grace, but then our, our willingness to take it to the world as we've received it. What grace is mine? We'll keep our seats as we sing. Uh, that'll allow the stewards to, to lift the offering. Maybe um, if, if they've finished doing that, we'll stand for the remainder of the song. What grace is mine? <laughs>